0: Yo, human improvisers. Welcome to this 1980s themed episode of YesBot. I hope you are rad. This week's guest is Dylan Emery. Dylan was interviewed in quite a busy cafe, so apologies for the background noise. Perhaps sit in a busy cafe while listening to the podcast. And that way, it'll just appear normal.
1: la vale. verdad everyone, and welcome to YesBot, the podcast about robotics and improvisation. Not in that order, in the other order of those, the two orders that those two words could possibly be. Um, If you haven't listened before, let me just get you up to speed. Um, I was walking in the woods behind my house, and uh, leaning up against a tree was this old husk of a robot. It was weather-worn and rusty, um, but as a sort of amateur roboticist, my name's Chris Mead, by the way, hi, I'm the host of the show, Um, I got very excited and dragged this robot home where I managed to bring it back to life, put it together. And in repairing it, I found that it was actually an ImprovBot 5000, this incredible maker robot that is just an improviser, essentially, is made to improvise. And to do that, it has five Uh, slots on its back five lines of code to make it the perfect improviser Um, and so I got very excited and I thought what happens if I find the very best improv minds in the country or indeed the world and get them to program this robot to be uh, an amazing scene partner you know I I, I have to say I saw pound signs or probably euro signs now Um, I thought this could really uh, work so so this has become my life's work to program the perfect improviser. And this week I have an amazing guest to help me. It's Dylan Emery. Woo! woo <laughs> Hello. Very nice to have you on the show. What a nice shiny robot you have. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, um, it's an iterative process. Okay. So it's gone through a lot of changes uh, over time. Uh, just because various things have malfunctioned and stuff. Ah. But uh, yeah. So I'm very excited to have you on the show. Not least of which, you were my very, very first improv teacher. Ah. Oh. Yes, you you changed my life in a fairly fundamental way. So it's uh, I feel like it's a a really good thing to have you on <laughs> on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully uh hopefully everything's better now. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Th- yes, yeah, so you changed my life fundamentally yeah. and now it's awful, <laughs> Exactly.
2: No. I used to be happy and uh, now I have nothing but <laughs> despair and dread.
1: No. I am I, I'm I've fallen down the rabbit hole of joy. Oh. Of improv joy. Um couldn't I get you just to uh say a little bit about your your work uh for the audio, wider audience.
2: Okay, um, in improv terms, so there's a bunch of stuff that I'm involved with. First of all, there, the first in order, in fact, uh, there's a thing called the Crunchy Frog Collective, which was a uh, kind of originally a kind of teaching uh, improv teaching outfit started by Alan Marriott, uh, and then I joined that. Alan Marriott's a fantastic Canadian improviser now back in Vancouver, um, though he may be coming over to the UK again. Oh, cool! Yes, uh, and he's uh, brilliant. Anyway, he was teaching uh, improv. There wasn't very much uh, teaching of improv at the time. This is like 50, 16, 17 years ago, and um, and I joined his classes. So that's what happened there. And then I helped out with that. So the Crunchy Frog Collective. Then it became a website which I run and still run to this day, and it's basically an, a, a website for for improv in the UK, and anyone can post stuff, news, and it's a one-stop shop for improv. You should be writing slogans. That's no. fabulous. Yes, Thanks. I shall do that. Uh, exactly that. So that's called that the, the crunchy frog collective.com and anyone who's in improv, who's got shows or, 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 workshops that are public, please, please get in touch with me and I will happily, uh, let you set you up so you can post things about that. Did that. Then Alan set, uh, decided he wanted to do a professional show, um, like a back again, cause he hadn't done one for a long time, a short form comedy show. And he and I together started grand theft impro. Grand theft impro is a short form, you know, comedy show, um, um, been in London, we've been, we're now I think 11 years old and we've been doing shows Yeah, over for 11 years. We normally do kind of weekly shows, sometimes monthly shows. In fact, we've just changed our format now. So Grand Theft Impro now in London is now going to be Grand Theft Impro and Enemies. Uh, and it'll be us, us plus other groups that we detest um, who will come along and we'll do an evening of fun and games. So yeah, that's, that's that. Uh, and that's me and Phil Whelans and Charlotte Gittins uh, are currently in that. Though It's changed many, many times over the years then uh, I got involved with Ken Campbell the incredible Ken Campbell who's like a theatrical maverick uh genius uh, and I don't use that word very often an amazing theatre guy known in the establishment of, of, of British uh, kind of quirky uh, theatre known very well his like one of his plays opened the cot as low as it was then at the National Theatre like he's a very mainstream like known by all the mainstream people been around forever and did amazing stuff so he set up um, he was asked by Mark Rylance to create a celebration of Shakespeare in 2005 uh, for a show that they were going to do at the Globe Ken said well uh, Ken knew about improv and uh, he'd known Keith Johnston back in the day um, when he was at the Royal Court, um, decades earlier, and he was always interested in improvisation and using that as part of a tool of developing shows and developing people, which he'd done over time. He gathered a group of people together, actors who he knew uh, had skills, uh, some improvisational skills, but mostly just interesting performance skills, and kind of just threw together essentially a kind of Shakespearean theatre sports. It was called competitive poltroonery. Uh, and it was on the Globe stage, and it was a bunch of folk who were very brave actors who really had no idea. Like they hadn't had, like most, almost any of them, official improv training. They'd just been thrown into it by Ken. By Ken. So that was incredible. Um, Yeah, uh, I wasn't involved at that time. Um, I was involved like a couple of years later because he kept that group together. Uh, and he then did, was asked to do shows at the Royal Court, uh, again celebrating some of the playwrights, which were famous playwrights who came through the Royal Court. Uh, and uh, I was asked to join that group, which then became The School of Night. And that group has been there since 2005. Um, and it still continues. So we just did uh, the Out of White Literary Festival, myself and Sean McCann. And it was us doing a two, two-hander improvised Shakespeare with uh, lots of other bits and bobs and fun and games. And then we were followed by Michael Pennington, who's like one of our the great Shakespearean uh, actors. Uh, so he he, (laughs) it was kind of yeah it was great he was very
1: very nice but it was uh, genuinely awe inspiring to have him come after us and then kind of do stuff I saw your photo on Twitter I think of that or Facebook maybe Anyway, you Both. looked very happy.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He was, it was amazing, and it was great because he was just, like, he was just basically reading from his memoirs. He was doing King Lear in New York, uh, and he's been around forever, and he's done you know like fifty different productions of Shakespeare, and he's just a brilliant actor. But he was doing quotes and uh, from sh- different from Shakespeare, but he would do it in character, and it was just transformative in this theatre we were doing it in. It was it was amazing to watch. So that yeah, was great. Uh, so Shakespeare, so that School of Night, um, and. In the School of Night, I met with a whole bunch of people who I still work with. Adam Megiddo, uh, Oliver Senton, Sean McCann, um, Lucy Trod was in there at the time, uh, a whole bunch of people. Anyway, so what happened then was um, so the School of Night continued, myself and Adam Megiddo. We'd started playing with the idea of doing, we'd started improvising music, partially because Alan Marriott is a great musical improviser and he kind of taught me how to, some of the basics of how to create song structure. Mm. So I then brought it to the group and said, well, we can do this as part of the show. Ken was very excited by this. So we'd started doing it a lot in the School of Night shows. So Ken, um, what? Of course, he had to complicate everything because he wanted to push people till they were broken. That's his style, you know, or till they do something that they never knew they could do—extraordinary things. He was not interested in the mundane, so uh, he thought, "Yeah, this is fun. People can improvise in different styles." He also thought it was a great wheeze, a great lark, to uh, take a kind of standard improv format like Emotional Roller Coaster but apply it to the Shakespearean world. So we had Humour Roller Coaster with the four Elizabethan humours. The Elizabethans thought there were four kind of fluids in the body that kind of regulated the kind of personality you were and how you felt at the time, and they were always in kind of out of balance with each other. And most of medicine, in fact, since Galen, in fact, before Galen, um, uh, has actually been based on the four humours. Anyway... So he would then get people to do a scene, and and they would switch, and he'd shout out, you know, sanguine or phlegmatic or choleric or whatever, and they'd have to switch, kind of an emotional roller coaster. Well, then he thought, well, let's mix those two up. Let each of the players have a different musical style that they can improvise in, and they can sing in that style. And then when you uh, when he shouts out or when they shift humor, they have to change musical style. So in the end, at this particular show we did in Edinburgh called In Pursuit of Cardinio. There were eight actors on stage. I was the musician at the time. I had a guitar and a keyboard and drums and stuff. And each person had four different musical styles based on the four humors. So there were 32 possible styles that any of them could kind of just jump into at any point. And so he was just, and I had to just follow them. And we had to follow each other. And I had to kind of make sure that it sounded like it was vaguely in one thing. So he was creating these weird Elizabethan musicals uh, based on these people switching, uh, switching around. Well, it was uh, so it was fun, and we pushed it to the limit. I mean, it was a mess, but it was interesting, and some incredible stuff came out of it. From that, we actually did one particular show, um, which was a Halloween show. Uh, we did it at the Union Theatre, and in that Halloween show, Ken thought, well, if it's Halloween, let's not do a standard Shakespearean thing. Let's tell a different type of story. And he asked the audience for a serial killer, and they gave him uh, Dennis Nielsen, a nasty Amstead-based uh, uh, Amstead uh, serial killer. Um, which is a pretty horrible story. So we sure, were trying to genuinely yeah. do something horrendous. So we did it, and it was done as a musical. He just basically sat back and went, you know, Dylan, you get, you, you do this bit. So I was, again, playing for that. And there was an Adam Maguino took the central role. Adam is a, one of the finest natural improvisers I've ever, ever seen. Like, he just get, got it from the day one. Mm. He just knew, like, this is what's an interesting scene. He's just just incredible natural talent. Um, now, of course, honed to absolute perfection. Anyway, so he was already good at the start, even though he'd not done it before really. Um, and and we'd done it, you know a few years of school of nighting. So we did that, and he did this astonishing piece in the middle of it, where he was playing Dennis Nielsen, slitting the throats of you know these his gay lovers while singing this beautiful song, which I was accompanying. It was a genuinely incredible kind of spine tingling moment. After that, Adam and I basically both came to the conclusion, like. There's something in this, we should try to do this. We should try to make an improvised musical. Uh, I mean, ironically, uh, Alan Marriott had done an improvised musical before, but i like, never trained about how to do an improvised musical. He'd just done improvised singing. Um, so we never really got around to doing it and then he left. But so this is a chance for us to do something from scratch. So Adam and I basically started then Showstopper, the improvised musical, Um, got a group of people together and uh, spent a week in the Actor Center, uh, just training people from scratch without really knowing how to do it ourselves. We just done a little bit of School of Night stuff, but we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, So actually we learned a a lot along the way and Ken came in and helped out a bit with things like improvising great staging and stuff, which was he was amazing at. Uh, At the end of which uh, with this group of people who never done anything like this before uh, we put on a show and it was pretty good it was okay um to keep control of the show because really we didn't know you know we had no idea what we were doing uh, the suggestion came from, I forget, either me or Adam, that I should be an on-stage director, just to keep, so I could move things backward and forwards because we knew we'd lose track. And actually, it was from that necessity that, that Showstopper, with its writer, came, because that's mm. what it was. Anyway, that was really fun and interesting, and we said, and Adam and I said, okay, let's, let's turn it into a show. Uh, so we then kind of recruited a bunch of professionals and started rehearsing. So that's the final piece of the jigsaw, I believe, is that. Well, there's one more thing as well. So Showstopper has been now around for like 10 years uh, and, uh, and has done quite well. And then we've got um, R- and Ruth Bratt, who's in Showstopper, and I started doing a show about a year and a half ago called Ghost Couple. And that is a two-prov where we basically choose an atmospheric location, a place that has a history. And then we just improvise three or four interweaving storylines of different people throughout that history and just they touch on you know in a kind of limbic way they touch kind of the edges of of each other's stories sometimes very directly and sometimes indirectly and there are just like three or four sort of woven story strands between you know a bunch of couples basically ghost couples uh, who have who have a really important moment in their lives during that time so ghost couple is the final show that I mostly do
1: and that's an uh, exciting thing to end on because uh, this edition of the podcast mm-hmm. is out and about. Uh, we are actually at the Birmingham Improv Festival where you're about to do Ghost Cup. Indeed, and you're about to do Project 2. I am indeed, With yeah. We're in, the, we're in the same
2: slot. Yeah, it's actually, a two. people have bought tickets to see both. It is yeah. a double header.
1: That is very exciting. It is. Yeah. So that's why you might hear a little bit of bustle around us. We are on tour. I think that's quite exciting. Mm. And the other exciting thing is that I've had to bring the robot out of my house yes. actually to a different location. Does it travel well? Well, I mean, you can see that at the Moment in the shape of a scooter. That's mm-hmm. I rode the robot up here. I oh, just that was the, yeah, is it like a transformer? Can it can it be take many different forms? I mean, there it's not as complex as a transformer. So I just bent. There, and there, and that's just its normal shape. So it's, ah, you know... It, wow, you wouldn't even you wouldn't notice,
2: actually. You wouldn't even notice it in the room now. It kind of blends in.
1: Yeah, it's got uh, active camouflage. <laughs> as yeah. in, Like the Predator? Yeah, loads of cameras all over it, yeah, and yeah. then a kind of a uh, a sort of one two-way mirror skin, which then it projects the opposite of what the camera from its back is absolutely you know, yeah. yeah 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 and this in the
2: standard way though actually I uh, there was a story the other day about how chameleons do it it's it's amazing they have like three different layers of skin. And one of them has got melanin in it of different ty- t- types. And then the other one basically just, it's a bit like a kind of, uh, it basically just regulates every part of it, uh, how um, how opaque it is or not. And so the underlying colors. So it's basically like having a multi-layered kind of, uh, pers- like imagine having three layers of colored plastic that, you, you know, of, of red, green, and blue that you could kind of just uh, independently change. The... change. Yeah. Wow. So that's how it does it. It's amazing.
1: I wonder if it does it consciously.
2: Uh, it does it mostly for mating that right. it, it, people it doesn't do it for camouflage um most chameleons don't they do it to communicate wow it is how they communicate they don't they have no ears uh this is what this program said <laughs> um so they the color changes are, are communication so if you and and the biggest color changes are when
1: two chameleons are potentially interested in mating i <coughs> was uh, just reading an amazing sci-fi novel where one of the races had no ears or mouth and they they had um they change the colours in their cheeks and stuff to talk. But that's yeah. it. That's what chameleons do. That's a real thing. Ah, uh-huh. so yeah, that's where they got it from, probably. Oh, well, um, if I just turn the robot over, you'll okay. see these five slots in its back. Oh, yes, I got it. Yep. that is, uh, It's a slightly old-fashioned input method. Is it like um, a ticker tape, that literally like a card you punch, it goes in there? Well, actually, I found that it fits... Um, Nintendo 64 cartridges
2: that's very convenient yeah it is incredibly convenient oh, much better so imagine if it was like a cassette tape like a Spectrum because yeah, I yeah. had, we had we were, I was a Spectrum family yeah
1: me too oh
2: go. Well, yeah. yeah, 128k k oh had. well mm. you see I'm a bit older than you so we had, so we had 16k briefly and then actually you know, my our friends had a ZX81 Ooh. which I remember programming a game uh, in basic uh, which is you know and then after that we got a Spectrum 48 which we had for most of our childhood and then we did move on to the 128 and then my brother who's now a f- hardcore programmer Mm. Uh, he got a, a Spectrum QL, which was the one with a little, little tape drive in it. Oh, built in Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he learned to uh, program from assemb- by assembly language because he used to program games on a Spectrum 48K and using BASIC was far, far too slow. So he basically learned the very fundamental machine code because that was the only way you could do it. And now he's like a super high-flying uh, programmer.
1: Well, in honor of the Spectrum, we could use another input method. Would you prefer that I record this onto a cassette tape and then yes. we'll upload it that way at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Because I've been wanting to try out a different input method. You should do the the old audio tape. <coughs> yeah, yeah I will. <coughs> okay, well I'll just set that up here then. So I assume just we'll just say your five commands and then we'll will uh yeah just uh, should interpret in. them obviously yeah, we it, yeah. we
2: should be aware of the fact that the spectrum famously in fact all of those audio uh, loading ones because what they're doing is essentially they're lis- listening to the audio and then every single tone is, is either a kind of up or, or one, one but yeah. no. so they are re- notoriously unreliable i think we should try it but i'm just telling you beforehand that often it doesn't quite work there are glitches it, it misreads things
1: yeah i remember i can remember that my heartbreak when superman didn't load because I'd got it off a friend, we'd done a tape to tape, and then it, it didn't. Load. I remember
2: set my save game from uh, from The Hobbit, uh, and I was so close. It was such a hard adventure game, but really cool. And it was just I didn't know, it not know failed. It
1: stretched magnetic tape stretch or something. Ah, oh, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, mm. I never knew why. So uh, you have five five bits. You can impart five bits of advice or program five lines of code, however you want to think of it. Okay, uh, to make it. I mean, people ask what we're trying to achieve. I think what we're trying to achieve is your perfect scene partner, or someone that you would find magnetic to watch up on stage mm-hmm. and like an amazing improviser. And I know five is pretty crazy to try and do that, but uh, that's what that's what we're shooting for here. Now, are there echoes of all the previous programs in there, or are we starting from scratch? Uh, there shouldn't be any other programs in there. Shouldn't. But well. If, you know we've we both we've both watched films. We, we know that, that there's going to be something in there. okay, uh, but yeah, as f- I can assure you that to the best of my knowledge, we are blank slate. Okay. all right, uh,
2: people I want to be in a scene with, okay, I'm going to try to build a Ruth Bratt.
1: <laughs> oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah. Ah. Cool. Okay, then. Uh, so what would you say was your first point?
2: Well, if I, because obviously as you, as we discussed before this program uh, started, I actually didn't realize this is what was going to happen. So I'm going to, I'm going by the seat of my pants. I'm going to think about what I think makes kind of Ruth and probably Adam. They are the two probably best uh, rounded improvisers and Mark Meer as well. Anyway. Yeah. So, so yeah. Okay. I'll, I'm an amalgam. Rule number one. First thing, absolute vulnerability, emotional vulnerability on stage.
1: Right. So um, being open to everything that happens to you. Yeah,
2: exactly. Being open and being, you know, th- there's a great quote, one of the many, now many, uh, impro TED Talks. I forget who it is who said it. But the definition of cha- uh, of uh, listening is being willing to change. And since I, the kind of impro I'm interested in is emotionally change-driven impro mostly, um, that therefore emotional vulnerability is the thing yeah absolutely being genuinely open most improvisers are just because of the nature of how it's taught and people's expectations when they come from uh they love the you know you know chatting until something funny might happen Mm. um that's that's one and and you can get some great shows that way but obviously there's the other way which is just you know it basically improvising theater
1: so being just open to the world and and but when that happens that you are changed by it fundamentally you uh you don't have one thing and then that is your character for the scene you can change and grow in fact that's
2: a problem that people have when you're doing narrative improv i mean there's uh, there's a big discussion here basically but one of the problems of um a very typical way that improv is taught especially if you're doing kind of improv that's designed to help sketch writers yeah which is a lot of like harold stuff a lot of ucb stuff uh and it is very good at that Uh, you find the game in the scene and to find the game and find the game between characters as well is you take the same characters and you put them in different environments or you take uh, the same game and you have different characters do them, mm-hmm. whichever way around you want to you know, do it. So you basically say, don't change. Whatever the thing is, just try it in different ways. So it's like the equivalent of a, in an acting class. Someone comes in and says, right, you play the, the angry dad and you play the sullen teenager. It does the game That dynamic stops at the point at which the sullen te- teenager stops being sullen and wants to hug the dad. Yeah, then it's a different thing you're doing. You're suddenly telling a story, which I think is fascinating, but you're not finding the, the, the game of the thing that they've got. So if you're taught that way, don't change. Carry on hammering your head in different directions, but in different places. That's, that's what will happen, but you won't tell a story that way. You'll just be a series of sketches. Mm. So, uh, yeah, emotional vulnerability is, uh, is, uh, basically means you naturally tell stories. So that's it.
1: I, I was, I'm, I immediately, my brain goes to the improvathons because I feel that one of the side effects of extreme sleep deprivation is that you can't help but become more vulnerable and more emotionally, I don't, yeah, more, yeah, more emotionally vulnerable. Um, And I think some of the most incredible scenes I've seen have been in that last 10 hours of the Improvathon. Do you Mm -hmm. think there is a correlation between that? So that state of being kind of like an open wound by that point, essentially.
2: Yeah. Or, uh, an, uh, or openly invulnerable in the world that you're enjoying it so much. You still change, but you are just, but you're kind of feel it totally empowered and you're happy to be, have your heart broken because uh, the improviser in you is going, this is a, this is the cool stuff. My heart's just been smashed to smithereens. You know, uh, that's, and that's what you want. You know, it's, it's, uh, because basically, you you get lifted. You should get elevated into into understanding that you're channeling a great story, and and therefore you just delighted. Like I love dying in improvathons. I want to die. Um, some people want to not die. They don't want to be have their hearts broken. They because they kind of feel protective of themselves, and I totally get that because it feels very very personal. It, you have to. I, I think to be a good storyteller, you have to find the joy of riding the wave of. Uh, of utter destruction and uh, an and absolute sort of the infinitude of sort of beatitude, blessedness, and find both of those things equally thrilling. If you try to protect yourself against those things, you're basically saying, from everything from the middle point down, I'm kind of not, I'm not willing to experience for the sake of the audience. Yeah. Uh, and then you're going to just limit what you can do. So yeah, I, I think one of the problems that people have uh, in the Improvathon, a lot of guests, when they come out of a, uh, a non-emotionally driven uh, improv style is that I realised after a bit, you know, that whole thing of, you know, the kind of Saturday Night Live sketch, basically the same characters in different environments or the same game in diff- with different characters, that thing, it's fun to watch it once a week. It's not fun to watch it you know, once every two hours for 25 episodes yeah. back to back because after all while you're going, I, yeah, we have actually seen this. And, and the only thing to really make those characters last is, is that they're not the same character. You only know who you are at the end of the show. That's how you have to do narrative improv in my experience. Um, so, yeah, so you have to change. And I, I've known people who've really struggled with their, especially their first couple of improvathons, because they come in going, my deal is this. I'm the angry uh, guy with the with the stoop and I'll be angry with people and then make and have jokes a about it. Yeah, and that's it. <laughs> and that's fine and uh, I'll sit on my stoop and sh- shout at people as they go by and it'll be hilarious um, the first two, three times. And then suddenly they go, why am I not involved in any relationships? Why have I, no one's falling in love with me? Why am I not going on adventures? Why am I not having fun? And it's because they've decided beforehand my anchor is I'm the angry guy who shouts at people on a stoop. So yeah, do it the other way around. Just come in without knowing what you're going to be and then f- discover it
1: so character is process as a as a constantly changing landscape
2: yeah, it's, or, or think of it, because you, you don't want it so you're changing completely. So it's not like you come in and you have no anchor. It's, uh, it's a bit like the old thing about, uh, you know, the, the Eskimo who takes a bit of whalebone and, and, you know, he discovers the statue he wants to make inside it. Within it yeah. So that's kind of what you're doing. So you, you, so you must never do anything that contradicts, like, oh, I'm a different, that makes no sense. Mm. Uh, so you're just discovering more and more things inside but as you slowly, you know, carve out your character, so you, it is one thing. It's not you. There's the other problem is you can just change so quickly. You go, oh well, I'll be, I'll be this now. I'll be now what you want in this scene, and of course, then that makes no sense either. You have no, there's no continual character. So you just have to sit there and go, but you allow yourself to change, but be the same person who has changed. And as John Barton said, in uh, playing Shakespeare. Play the contradictions see so people are contradictory. Hitler probably loved his mother. You know, there's absolutely no reason why you can't be more than one thing uh, It's actually a problem people have in in real life You know someone's a serial killer They somehow can't believe that there would be a really good laugh to have a chat within a pub But it's absolutely likely that that is the case. M- you know might be anyway. Yeah, so yeah, it's not impossible So yeah, you have to play the contradiction, but not but that doesn't mean um, Negating your own previous character choices. Rule
0: number
2: two. Be mostly Spanish. Be mostly Spanish. Be mostly Spanish. Yeah, I think uh, Spanish characters have some of the most fun. Right. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that, especially Justin Brett from Showstopper. He's particularly good at it. Uh, and Ruth Pippa. As soon as you're Spanish, there's something about Spanish which makes it. Uh, it's, there's a there's a kind of a, there's a there's a kind of a, the improv Spaniard um, is extravagant, loves life, gets their heart broken, uh, gets into trouble, um, is hilarious. They, they have a bit of everything. So I
1: say, yeah, be be mostly Spanish. That's amazing because when you said it, I thought. Dylan's going to, uh, this is going to be a metaphor that's going to be really uh, <laughs> eloquent and interesting. Uh, but you are actually saying just be Spanish yeah. quite a lot of you'd, the time.
2: You'd be amazed how much fun it is uh, being Spanish. As long as you're not just stupid Spanish. You know, be a Spanish to so Spaniard who wants to be Spanish and is serious about what they do. I mean, like some of the most... Like, look at Lorca, right? Lorca is this incredible poet and playwright. Just, you you, you can't believe... Like, deep Song, you know, which is kind of this sort of Spanish f- sort of linked to flamenco uh, type of singing. It is just the most b- heartbreaking, astonishingly kind of uh, soul-destroying sort of destroying way of expressing yourself. Uh, and then you can have just totally sort of uh, fun, stupid, silly uh, Spanish as well. Yeah, it's great. Good. <laughs> Rule number three. Understand that you are, uh, you're walking backwards through your scenes. I think it's something I've said a lot in, in teaching, and I think that is a very good one. It, there really is a problem. I mean, it's it's tricky. There is great room for planning scenes. It's, it can be incredibly helpful. You can have a great idea, you know, and that you genuinely add. you think beforehand. You go, well, that scene, it really needs this. Uh, it'd be, oh, I've got a hilarious thing I'm going to do now. Uh it, it, it's so compelling because it seems like a great idea. But what happens is the, the, the idea in your head and the way it pans out in the scene when you're planning, when you're thinking of a great idea before you've actually got onto the scene, is always better than what it will be in the scene. Hmm. So people who plan, who's all, and we all plan at various times, yeah. um, you, I'm, it's almost never the case that a planned suggestion, when you try to implement it, doesn't disappoint you as you're doing it. That's what I say, So I see you see it happening. You see people going, ah, yeah, but it's not quite it's not as much fun as it was gun it was in my head before I started it.
1: Whereas something that is just discovered and you discover it exactly the same moment as the audience does. Yeah. That's
2: it's just uh, you get more joy out of it. You know, plan when it's when it's do a planet, absolutely. If you if it's such a good gag you can end a scene on it. Yeah. Great, uh, or if you're, or if, or if the scene is tanking and it needs something to just push it somewhere else, and the people just have no idea what's going on, you just then you can just come on and do whatever you need to to save it. But yeah, walk backwards through the scene. Don't know where you're going. Just remember where you've been, and you will uh,
1: have a lot of luck. Because I've heard people say walk backwards, and I, I have to confess I've never quite got it. So it's all it's to do with never knowing where you're going, and yeah. just always mining what's just immediately happened for the next thing is that sort of not
2: quite not, not the way quite. i do it so this is this comes this is actually from uh, alan marriott um so the okay this is what you can think of it this is actually uh, there's a quote from um quentin crisp where he said there's a problem he said he said yeah, this is, was a fantastic player so with betty born and he, he was quotes from quentin crisp in it and this one was this he said people nowadays young folk back in the day if they um they were if, they were, if their dad was a plumber, they were going to become a plumber or maybe mm-hmm. a carpenter. If their dad was a banker They'll become a banker, maybe an accountant. They had a very simple set of choices. Now he says the problem is that I, he, they look out and they see this huge Landscape of all of options, possibilities, and people are baffled by it. They go well I could be this. I could be a mountaineer. I could be a geologist. I could be anything But if I do any one of those things it necess- ne- ne- by, by necessity, I can't it's gonna block off a whole bunch of other things because I need to put time and effort into that Can't do the other thing. I can't learn Russian and also become a nuclear physicist in the same two years and you know, it's very very hard to do both so you're always blocking stuff up and so what happens is people get incredibly anxious they're massively anxious because every choice they make they see as being limiting their life choices okay um and it's and the problem is because they don't know and they don't even know if they're going to be happy when they get there that's the thing they don't know and they often they're not So it's not a great way to live and it's certainly not a great way to build a scene because it's the same idea, right? I look forward. Oh, I know. This is the bit when at the end of this is going to be like the end of, you know, the dead parrot sketch is going to be that great. It's first of all, you've got a problem, which is other people. They won't let you get there in that way. But secondly, it won't be that good anyway, even if it happened perfectly because you're not that good a writer. Mm. So... Instead, what you do is you uh, just look backwards. So in the life version of this, so when it's talking about you know, philosophy, my philosophy of life, don't if you try to go forwards and go, I want to have this one thing, uh, you'll end up being unhappy for the reasons I've said. So instead what you do is you face your back to the future and you look and you scan your past and you go, what makes me happy? yeah in terms of scenes what 's in the scene what 's in my past what 's the stuff that matters to me what 's the, the, you know what are, the, what, are the, what are the materials that have made this thus far compelling to watch uh, or in the case of life, yeah what makes me happy, what makes me content, what kind of ingredients do I need in my life and then you just take a step backwards, making sure that your eyeline keeps in all of those things so in other words, in your vision, in your life experience, you make sure that the things that make you happy are still there don 't worry about which of the ten thousand choices. Uh, you might be making, just make sure one of them uh, is the one that contains those things that you need. And so that way you suddenly find yourself stepping into the future and you've made a career choice uh, that happens still to contain the stuff that keeps you happy. And you look forward and you go, oh, it seems I'm a, you know, I'm a brain surgeon because that happens to have included all the things. Now, when you look forward, you, have, you would not have made that choice because there were 10,000 different options or 100,000 options. But by going, looking backwards and going, these are the ingredients I need, it ends up being the, one of the right ones for you. And in the scene, it's the same idea.
1: I like this because it's not only a good improv podcasting, it's become a bit of a life podcasting as well now, hasn't it? It is. Which yeah. is good. Yeah. I, I envied this robot a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> because I, you know, it's having all of this knowledge right from birth, whereas I've had to get into my fourth decade before that was the case. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah it helps not being you, see, you need a weird mixture for it to work of being not ambitious and yet being ambitious because if you're ambitious then you tend to want to go oh I want this one thing yeah a bit like in a scene oh I've got this a great idea I want to get to the point where uh, I reveal myself to be that person's dad because that will be hilarious as long as I don't screw it up on the way and make me someone else you know which is why it never works um, so yeah so you have to have a uh, but you have to have ambition to, to want to get a great scene but no ambition for it to happen in the way you expected <laughs>
0: Rule
2: number four. Be a geek. Check. Yeah, be a geek. I have rarely... I don't want to insult anyone who regards themselves as not a geek. Um, I would say almost all the people in my life that I care about or find interesting are massive geeks about at least one thing often more than one thing (laughs) they say with podcasts this is some research i read recently people who listen to one podcast on average listen to five or six every week it just becomes a thing that they do people who are geeky, geekish about one thing i think tend to be geekish about more than one thing uh it's the opposite of cool. It's it, it it means you uh you love something more than you love your ego. It's just a very good thing. Um,
1: I love that as a description of mm, uh, of nerds that you love something more than you love your ego. Yeah. I've never heard that before. That's I've amazing. never heard of it either. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, that yeah. that just rings very true to me immediately yeah
2: because you can't you
1: can't if you're kind of you know like if you're mark mirror
2: you just love comic books you can't be thinking i love comic books i'm because that because i'm great <laughs> it's yeah. like no because you just you're passionate about you love the characters and you want and you know more about them you
1: want to talk about them forever but there is a weird alchemy in that that you pass a point where people you know mark Mir is actually very cool. Everything's cyclical in that way.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think actually, because I see it now, because I've got a couple of kids, and so um, and they're young, three, uh, four, and seven. So I'm really seeing them go through that stage now of learning what it is to be in a community and f- to be a people who do not have your best interest at heart and don't find everything you do amazing, and um, you know won't forgive you and don't have to spend time with you. And if you're a dick, they'll not be with you for a while. And all that stuff. It's very, very interesting. And there is a thing. What is cool? I mean, cool is a problem that affects people a bit later than seven usually, but it does start pretty early and it is not caring. I don't care. I don't care about the other, about, about authority. I don't care about what other people think. And that makes them cool because they kind of are unassailable. But the best way to be unassailable is also to not love anything. Yeah. So if you love something, I really like comic books, I really like you know, uh, role-playing games, I really like painting miniatures, I really like cars and how they work, whatever it is that you choose. If you love something, then uh, you are immediately assailable because the other person says, that's stupid yeah that's right it's the easiest thing in the world and you don't have to justify it like Donald Trump just says no that's wrong you're stupid you shouldn't believe that you're an idiot you know it's his debating style it's the easiest thing in the world to say and it is absolutely vulnerable because you can't say no it's not which is what kids try to say no it's not stupid and they go yeah it's just stupid look it's just you putting on a stupid kid going to comic con and you know you're cosplaying you just look
1: like it's it's stupid (laughs) you can't really say no it's not because so it's a, a braver option to say I love this This has part of me in it, and I put it up because people are going to throw slings and arrows at it, but this has an element of me in it, and I love it so much. Mm and you'll suffer from it because children are you know cruel
2: as much as wonderful but they will do all of those things as they play and learn to become you know the, the adults they will eventually become uh, and the, and so some people will go yeah that's stupid and make you feel kind of you know uh, humble and they'll try to humiliate you in, in nasty ways uh, and you're very lucky if that doesn't happen but also probably it should happen because someone's going to do it Yeah. better to get used to it when you're 10 or... training wheel version absolutely yeah. so yeah so loving something to the point uh, but what's interesting is you can transcend it so if you you love something, people can say, that's stupid. And then if you care about what they think, which is natural. Then, of course, you feel humiliated, and now the world thinks I'm stupid. And then everyone else can join in and laugh, and they feel safe because they're on the side of the people who, who who hate things rather than who love things. Because hating is easy; it's just a negation. Loving things is hard because you can be negated, but you can't. You know, you can't enforce someone to love the things you love. So then, what happens is though, if you love it to the point where you're obsessed by it, to the point where you don't care about the opinions of the people who hate it, then suddenly you have gone that full circle, and you're cool again. Yeah. yeah, Because you no longer are impacted By the person who says I hate it And you go I don't care what you think I'm going to do it anyway And suddenly that person who hates things Who was cool because he could affect you You couldn't affect him Suddenly
1: seems an irrelevance Because just, they haven't created anything yeah, Exactly yeah. they're no longer cool I'm not there yet I do dearly dearly love many things But I yeah. As soon as uh, I get knocked down for it Or you know Someone makes a contrary comment then I get in my head about it. So yeah. I think that might have to be one of my long-term goals to get to a point where my love completely obliterates uh, anyone else's uh, hatred or, or unkind words. Cool. Wow. I thought this was an improv podcast. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like I should be paying you quite a lot per hour for this stuff.
2: <laughs> Rule number five. Charm. Okay. The indefinable quality of charm. Someone could, I know people who will do, who will behave very badly in improv terms to their scene partners or to the, you know, the, the storyline, uh, just gonna ride roughshod over it come in and, and the audience just goes, I don't care. I just like you. You're charming. I like your mischievous. It's fine. Uh, if people do something utterly, um, vulnerable, then they'll go, Oh my God, I can't believe it's happened to that person because I, I like them so much. So yeah, that's it. This, this, very hard to uh quantify notion of charm some people have it some people don't uh, and it's very hard to to get it if you haven't got it right it's ineffable it is kind of ineffable i mean you know i'm sure you could probably pin down those who who seem to be charming who seem to have audiences on their side and kind of try to work out what it is um but it is a very hard thing to program into yourself
1: But very easy to program into a robot. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for that. Be charming, yeah. So there are your five. You now have a complete set. Yep. Um, I will just uh, connect up the audio recorder to the robot. I've Mm. got a jack-to-jack. I think that will work. Yep, that should do. And then we'll just press play. Okay, so it's uploaded. Um you'll notice there is a big red button saying press on its chest there. Yep. Uh, but before you get to press that and turn the robot on and we'll just do a couple of scenes with your well essentially with your perfect scene partner. Oh great, good. Um you get to name it. Oh.
2: Um well I think I should probably call it uh
1: the Bratalizer. The Bratalizer. The yeah. That's a fantastic name. Um and yeah, let's do it, shall we? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, you get to put you get to put it on. Okay. Oh, that's exciting. Oh, powering up. Yeah. One, have absolute emotional
0: vulnerability on stage. Two, be mostly Spanish. Three, understand that you're walking backwards through your scenes. Four, be a geek. Five, be charming. Getting help. Oh. Right. Time to begin a
2: scene. Uh, walking backwards through a wall. Oh, oh dear. Sorry.
1: Oh God, the blue orange did it. I'm not going to like that at all. I mean, they have a robot-shaped door in the cafe now. Oh God. Is he going to come back? Is he... No, it's it's just going to walk in a straight line until... He is shouting olé. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes it any better or not. I mean, it's quite fun to look at. Oh, no, it's
2: actually now naming all of the uh, X-Men characters, but in Spanish, that's kind of a... Well, it's got, at least it's got the geekery in there, but it's, but, run, it's... literally walking through the entire building now. Come on. Oh,
1: you know, somehow I forgive it. This is why I don't bring it out of my house very often. Well, it's
2: actually destroyed most of a the theatre.
1: Well, at least it's outside now, I'm going across the road. Uh-oh. It's OK, I've got a, a remote shut down. There we go. So I'll we'll go and pick that up afterwards. Okay. I'm so sorry. I, uh, I feel really embarrassed. Um, well, it just took it literally. I mean, the, the rest it got. But... but the thing is that we're trying to marry art and technology, art and science. And it, it's not an easy thing to do. They're kind of insoluble with each other to a certain extent. It needs, met- it needs to understand the notion of metaphor. That's, mm. I think that's essentially it's what is missing. So, well, I'll pick myself up try again, try and put a different, I don't know, um, cognitive matrix in that maybe would be able to get that stuff that you were talking about. That's a
2: lot of syllables you just used.
1: Sure. um, And we'll see. You know, we'll see. Um, But until then, thank you so much for coming on my show. Yeah, I hope I didn't damage your robot. I'm sorry about that. Oh, no, the robot's indestructible. I'm just worried about the Mm. theatre and whether they'll still let me perform tonight. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's not long to go. Um, Mm. But I feel like people have listened to this and want to know more and probably come and see your work and stuff what you've already mentioned crunchy frog but are there other places on social media or other websites that you'd like to mention before we finish
2: uh that's the main one actually crunchy frog the the crunchyfrogcollective.com because it's free for everyone to use and i'd like to have more people posting their news and putting things in the calendar and kind of just letting people know what's going on uh in terms of improv so please uh Go to the website, there's contact details there about how you can get hold of me and uh, I will set you up and
1: you can tell the world about what you're doing. Brilliant stuff. And to all of you improvisers and amateur roboticists at home, thank you for once again spending your time listening to this. I'm sure... There are a lot of geeks out there as well and uh, we appreciate you immensely. Please do contact the show. or All of the contact details are at the end just after this bit. Uh, tweet us and Facebook us and email us and, and tell us what you like and what you don't like and who you'd like on the show. That would be amazing. Uh, but until next time. Cheerio! <laughs> Thank you for
0: listening to YesBots. You can talk to me on Twitter at YesBot5000. Hey, why not join our listeners group at Facebook.com slash group slash YesBotClub. You can also email me on YesBot5000 at iCloud.com. Your host was Chris Mead. Find him at Mr. Chris Mead on Twitter. The YesBot theme was composed and engineered by Fred Deakin. YesBot logo and graphics by Kind Studio. Alberto El Hambriento is the Spanish name for Galactus. The literal translation means Hungry Albert.